delve into plant stories. The modern, the old, and the crazy in between. supplements. That one's a fact. Until about 2004, when there were more than 16,000 reported cases of adverse reactions. And that brings us into today's episode, Ephedra. Yeah, Ephedra is kind of an interesting plant, and if I'm being honest, it's kind of an ugly plant. Um... (laughs) It does have some cute flowers and stuff, but it's not your typical, you know, like a lot of these plants have been like, you could grow this in your garden. It just might kill you. I'm not 100% sure you would want to grow this in your garden. Maybe. So, ephedra is part of the genus of 65 species in the gymnosperm shrubs of the ephedra ossei family. So hopefully, you know, now you've noticed that it's mostly just whatever the name of the plant is added by Afe is like the actual name in many, many cases. Um, and, right? <laughs> and uh, gymnosperm plants are just any plant that reproduces by means of like an exposed to seed. This is one of those plants that has like a separate male and female plant, although there's a, there is a couple of species that have both on the same plant. They primarily exist in very dry regions. They're these very like low kind of scraggly looking shrubs and they have the ability to grow about maybe like four feet high and they have these small almost like scaly leaves that are about a centimeter long. Twelve of these species are found in the U.S. mostly in like desert kind of midwest areas of the u.s some of the same and other varieties can be found in mexico or south america and they also exist in china so they're definitely in both the east and western hemispheres they just tend to be in the drier regions of those so because the leaves are so tiny Uh, The bulk of photosynthesis actually happens in the stems, so they have very green stems, and this is thought to mostly be because that's an advantage in in these desert areas. Uh, If you have large leaves, you can lose a lot of water in kind of the transpiration, so this helps with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they seem well designed for dry, hot climates. Yeah, and it definitely brings to mind those, like, hot climates that you know from, like, TV shows or, like, especially Breaking Bad, where they're out in, like, the middle of the desert, you know, trying to make methamphetamines, and uh, definitely brings that, yeah, it definitely brings that, like, vibe in, but it's interesting because, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the plant that this is originally synthesized from, although there are obviously other varieties that still have a lot of the same alkaloids and compounds, uh, is actually from Asia. So the plant that the ephedrine drug comes from is called Ma Huang, or the ephedra sinica, and 
it has been a common drug in Chinese herbal medicine for a long time. The North American species of the plant, which is most commonly known as joint furs or Mormon tea. Uh, there's a few different varieties, but they have mostly just been used as like native foods or medicine. And they kind of usually make tea, which is popularly consumed in that area. I looked it up. You can buy this tea. It's very often available and used as kind of like a stimulant similar to other teas and coffees. And the reason so, it's called Mormon tea, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to ask, so is Mormon tea meant for Mormons? <laughs> well, so it was called that because where kind of uh, Mormon settled, which I believe was in Utah, was a drier area where this plant was available. And drinking tea made from the beverage did not break the rules of the Church of Latter-day Saints because they're not allowed to drink caffeine. So they couldn't have uh, the, you know, they couldn't have coffee. And so this was, you know, similarly drank, although it is a little bit interesting because the stimulant in it is definitely like a little bit more than regular coffee. <laughs> and, you know, it's from later, the <laughs> yeah, it's later synthesized into a pretty potent drug. So you are allowed to grow these plants at home in the U.S. There's no limit necessarily on the seeds or the plants, um, but the FDA has limited the use of certain medications that might have this in it or use of the plant in particular supplements and things like that because of its history as part of a weight loss supplement. And the plant itself is known to have a pine-like odor and a very astringent taste. I was very tempted to try to find some of this tea to taste it before this episode, but... It sounds refreshing. I'm, yeah, I was definitely curious about it. Unfortunately, with COVID and everything, getting it chipped here would not be something that would happen quickly, so I gave up on that idea, but... Maybe oh one gosh. of these days we'll have to do, like, a taste test. We should make a Dangerous Plants tea line. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, like I said, this plant, or at least the Ma Huang version of this plant, has been used in China for more than 5,000 years, primarily to treat asthma and hay fever. And popular belief holds that this is one of the longest commercially cultivated plants for medicinal purposes. Hmm. But there is no, you know, specific evidence to support this. It's just a very widely held belief. It's one of the oldest mentioned plants among, you know, some others that we've talked about here. Yeah. About 3,000 years ago, the Ma Huang was mentioned in Chinese medicine's The Divine Farmer's Materia Medica. So we've talked about Demateria Medica that was written by Dioscorides. So that was kind of the Western version. Uh, the Divine Farmer's Materia Medica was kind of the Eastern version and focused on the traditional Chinese medicine practices. 
in this text, it was described as a non-toxic plant treating mainly forms of the common cold, headache, warm malaria, causing the body to sweat, cough, and asthma. And it's thought to eliminate cold and heat, so kind of like fever or low temperatures. And it's thought to kind of break up hardness, so especially for coughing and stuff. That would oh, gotcha. be important. Um, and accumulations and gatherings, which I assume also is kind of on that mm-hmm. spectrum. Within. Yeah. And then later on in another important text called the Treaties on Cold-Induced Diseases, it is also considered having similar powers. And that was another kind of staple text in the practice of Chinese medicine. So these texts do also document some of the dangers that they knew of of using ephedra, which they state it should only be used in small doses for a short period of time, and that it's important to note it can cause a rise in blood pressure and cause heart attack and stroke if not used properly. So that was their kind of list of well-known side effects that they've had for a long time. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. If it's something that, like, makes you, like, overproduce to, like, get some kind of illness processed through you, then, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something that they took note of. You know, that that seems to be a very good theme of Chinese medicine is that they are pretty succinct in saying use it this way not this way and that's kind of how they keep things and in a way it's almost like surpassing these these dangers that created methamphetamines uh, as we know them to be a dangerous substance today so the inventor of kind of the modern methamphetamines, although there were compounds that were made a little bit earlier, used later on for different reasons, uh, was a man by the name of Nagai Nagayoshi, who, or Nagayoshi, I'm sorry, who was an exceptionally talented Chinese medical doctor in Japan, and later went to Germany to study chemistry in the late 1800s and then he practiced into the early 1900s and he originally went to Germany to study more things on the more medical side but he met a chemist there and ultimately he decided to study under him and he learned a lot about the chemical properties of different things and so when he returned to Japan He was trying to apply the tools of chemistry to some of the traditional compounds and plants that he had learned about during his time studying Chinese medicine. And after studying the chemical structure of the Mahuang plant, he came to kind of find this crystalline structure within the extract that they used from the plant. And after a while, he ended up isolating the alkaloid ephedrine. And after tinkering with that structure for about 20 years, they were able to synthesize methamphetamines. And a long process. 
yeah, he he took a long time. I think in in a way he probably it seems like he felt like this was his life work, you know, like this is what he was going to do. And it was still incredibly difficult to make until 1919 when one of the other chemists who was working on it at the time, who was actually a student of Nagai's, managed to streamline the process. His name was Akira Ogata. And that actually turned the drug into its crystalline solid form, uh, which we now know as crystal meth. didn't patent their work they were just kind of like working on it to to see what it did and what this ended up causing was the mass production of the drug in world war ii so it was used as a stimulant on both sides to keep soldiers alert this particular stimulant (laughs) has one of the longest half-lives yeah which is about eight to twelve hours so especially for soldiers and stuff, they believed that it was kind of a vital thing. It ended up being marketed in multiple different pharmaceutical companies and mass produced. They produced millions of pills with this in it um, to give to soldiers, again, on both sides, which is rather unfortunate. Nagai himself actually died in 1929. So he didn't really live to see his drug used in this manner, which kind of sounds like a blessing to me. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he was definitely pursuing, it seemed like more of a medical direction and to see his life work, you know, not be used with perhaps the respect he hoped for. Yeah. And initially... It was kind of meant to have other purposes. Like, yes, it is a stimulant, but they were doing some, like, looking some into things that might help with diseases like narcolepsy. They were looking at the kind of respiratory advantages, especially for things like asthma or chronic bronchitis and things like that. So you said they were putting them into pills? Was that like the main way people were using it? So there are definitely a couple different ways that it could be used. At the time, it was possible for it to be dissolved and injected, which actually had more to do with the compounds that were made back in Germany that happened before Nagai made these compounds. Um, But that didn't actually happen really until around the 1920s. Um, And this version of the drug in this form was easier to put into pills as far as giving the drug to soldiers and things like that. So that became a popular way to take it. But after that point, they did also use it in inhalers and different compounds, basically. 
Um, so yeah, it definitely had like pills was one way for sure, but it eventually bled into a bunch of different other things as people tried to find different uses for it. Like we talked about, when the drug was first introduced in the U.S., it was most often used in weight loss drugs and then as well as some beginner asthma compounds. Uh, in the 1930s, work was being done by U.S. pharmaceutical companies to produce a lot more asthma products that included the amphetamines. The inhaler and the other kind of products that they had were initially available without prescription. But it seems to be the trend. Yeah, as we know from other things. Um, but people did pretty soon describe it very energizing and euphoric effects as something that they wanted. And because of these stimulant effects, they did start more mass manufacturing the substance as a pill to market in the use of anti-narcolepsy drugs. People continued to use the drug recreationally as well. It became a part of beatnik culture in the 1950s, which was like a literary social movement where they sought inspiration from hustlers and petty thieves and drug addicts. And so it was known to be used within those circles and it actually wasn't until 1959 which is pretty late considering all the other addictive drugs that we know that were outlawed before that right. uh, that the U.S. decided to require prescriptions for some of these medications especially as they became aware of the just incredibly disturbing side effects of the drug which not only included addiction, but could also include hallucinations, rotting teeth. Uh, a lot of people have heard of meth mouth, which is where it causes your teeth to rot and kind of fall out. And so you'll have these people that, you know, basically have no teeth or have sporadic teeth. Mm -hmm. uh, severe weight loss, paranoia, delusions, abnormal heartbeat and heart failure. It does seem to affect the brain and some of the processes that are going on there that causes these paranoia and delusions even after possibly trying to distance yourself from the drug. And it's thought that addiction really skyrocketed in the 1990s as production went up and was able to be distributed by cartels, especially South American cartels, and the ease of obtaining methamphetamines through kind of more unregulated pill and medicine production was able to be used as a loophole. So, you know, as we know now to buy cough medicines and things, you often have to show identification that you're over 18. Mm -hmm. Uh, part of that is because they were essentially using the influx of the health medications that we use on a regular basis as a way to take some of these drugs and mass produce them for use on 
the drug market. And even today, stimulants in this kind of family have been used, or it seems maybe at least in the early 2000s, were still being used for sanction by U.S. military, although not nearly at the rate that they were used during the war times that we talked about. So they are more used as like a last resort, like people keep them on hand if they're so that if they're in danger and they're getting tired, they have they can take that and hopefully last until they can get to safety or complete a mission, but they're not necessarily like given to everybody like, hey, take speed. Woo! <laughs> phenomenon related to ephedra would be tiger king yes i'm assuming most people have watched it by this point but that is however valid that documentary is it is i would say a good example (laughs) of what can happen when uh you know a lot of people are addicted to meth and it was interesting how they presented it because it didn't come up for like a few episodes so you're just kind of like hearing these people's stories and you're like why are they doing all of these crazy things and then you're like oh everyone was doing meth regularly okay okay (laughs) or and then of course breaking bad right yeah a huge definitely yeah definitely good solid examples of what's going on you know we know that now what is very regulated here is that anyone who is importing the compounds that ephedrine is made you know is if you're importing these plant products oftentimes it's heavily regulated that you keep good documentation of what you're getting in and taking out because they're worried about this kind of thing. And you do see that in stuff like Breaking Bad where they're trying to get their supply. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say that compared to some of the other things that we've talked about, this being used as a dangerous drug is really relatively new. You know, we talk about how, you know, cocaine was used as a stimulant far, far back. And this compound was really made relatively soon. And it's not to say that the compound as a whole, like, doesn't have any stimulant properties. It was always well known that it had stimulant properties but it wasn't used as a stimulant in this way. It was a very well-respected medicine, you know, within this Chinese community. And it was 
really just extracting that one stimulant part and trying to use and manipulate it that kind of caused this out of control reaction almost yeah it seems to be like once consistently consistently i would say the west discovers some specific compound in like a traditionally used medicinal plant it then just becomes like uh incredibly heightened and uh just like blows up into a huge addiction problem that seems to be the trend of a lot of these plants that we've been studying yeah it certainly seems to be a pattern in a way and i do think part of it is their i don't know i don't know how to put this exactly but i guess there's something to be said for leaving things as they are versus trying to isolate and kind of heighten the effects of one particular compound in a plant. Yeah. So, you know, the plants that we use in herbal medicine, although there might be an alkaloid in there, sometimes other alkaloids in the plant or other factors balance out those effects uh whereas you know extracting one part of it might amplify its benefits but it also amplifies its negative effects some kind of balance of respecting traditions and then the desire for harder better faster stronger yeah the western way exactly (laughs) But, it, it, you know, this plant, it's like, it's, it's interesting, be, too, because it's such a, you know, it's essentially a desert plant. It's like this dry, I mean, it's green, yeah, but this dry, of... like, little desert plant. And uh, it's interesting that that's the plant that you would find that has such does have such like good medicinal effects or is something you'd want to drink in a tea because I'm sure it's one of the few plants that are really out there in those kind of areas not that there aren't plenty of plants in desert areas but certainly less than the lush foresty areas that a lot of the other plants we've been talking about have grown in I wonder if there's animals in that region who are like now familiar with this plant and I don't know, chew on it and use it for a similar simulation. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't look that up. But definitely possible. Mm-hmm. And like I said, people still drink the tea. You can buy it. So Yes. Well, I believe this concludes our our chapter on you know, major drug-related plants. Is that right? I think so. Maybe I'll think of something else later. But for our next episode, we're going to do exploding plants. Now, what do you mean by exploding? (laughs) (laughs) I think most of what we're going to talk about is a sandbox tree, which is a pretty cool plant, but does have a pretty explosive property. But we'll talk about some other plants, too, that have 
similar ways of doing things or also kind of have an explosive trait about them, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. oh, did you have a mini tip for ephedra? <laughs> uh, my mini tip for this would be that this is something that you could potentially grow at home if you wanted to. And if you were to go to a traditional Chinese herbalist, you could use this as a way to help with colds and things. I think what makes this particular plant dangerous and deadly really is the extraction of the ephedrine itself. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you get the chance, try some Mormon tea. Tell me what it tastes like. I'm curious. Is it flavored? I want to know. You know, I know a couple Mormons. I'm going to ask if they've ever tried this. <laughs> yes, definitely. Oh, well, that wraps up our episode for today. Dangerous Plants, Ephedra. Uh, if you like this episode, please give it a like, a share, tell a friend about it. And we look forward to you joining us next week as we start discussing exploding plants.